0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, last week we... We began by looking at the passage, a portion of the Olivet Discourse that runs from Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, all the way through verse 28. and We covered this in a general way, but we did not reach the very heart of the passage, which is what we're going to consider today. The very heart of it comes beginning at verse 15. So we will read this morning from verse 15 down through verse 20. These are the words of God. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Let us pray. God, our Father, we give you thanks for your word that you have committed to your people in every generation, that we might know you and walk with you and have your salvation and know you as Lord, be your sons and daughters. And, Lord, we desire that you open your word to us by the Spirit, that we might do just that and bring great glory to your name. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, this is the very heart of the passage because it is dealing with... God's people who are in Judea fleeing to the mountains. It is dealing with them being delivered in a very personal and physical way. This whole passage starts out with the disciples asking Jesus questions because He has just predicted that the destruction of the, Jeru- of the Jerusalem temple is going to occur in that generation. They're asking him questions as to when that is going to be, what is the sign that it's about to happen, and so forth. And their reasons for asking him are not theoretical, theological reasons. Their reasons are very personal and very practical, to spare their own lives and the lives of their families, so that they are not caught up in this destruction that Jesus himself says he is going to bring upon an unbelieving, Christless, apostate Jerusalem. And Jesus' reasons for answering them at such length are the same reasons. As the Good Shepherd, Jesus has a great pastoral concern that His holy ones, His disciples, His children, His sons and daughters, not be caught up in this destruction, but that they be delivered. And he gets right to the heart of the matter here in verses 15 through 20. He tells them that at a certain point, all of those disciples that are in Judea are to get out. Don't wait. Don't go back to your house. Get out now. That is the entire point of this passage. The rest of the passage, the verses that are surrounding verses 15 through 20, Jesus is giving them the context. He's telling them the various events that are going to occur... He's giving them general timing markers so that they know when the event is near. And then He finally, in our verses here, gives them a very specific timing marker to let them know the time is now upon you, get out. This period from about 30 A.D., that's when Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, just before His crucifixion, between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., when Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed, was one of the most chaotic periods of recorded history. And we have a good record of that period, not only, for example, by the Jewish historian Josephus, but also Roman historians such as Tacitus. It was a very crazy time, and Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared for that time. Uh, You had, during that time, even as recorded by Tacitus and others, the Roman Empire was characterized by civil wars and uprisings. It was characterized by an uncanny number of earthquakes, famines, and at one point in the 60s AD there, you had during a two-year period four different Roman emperors killed. Four Roman emperors in a period of two years. Now just to give you an idea, let's just say in the United States in a two-year period we had four different presidents, presidents because they were killed. Do you think that would create a little instability in our country? Of course it was, and that was what was going on in the Roman Empire. And so Jesus gives his disciples these general timing markers so they know what to expect. He tells them, first of all, on the back end, everything is going to happen in that generation. That's in verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. So he's saying on the back end, you know everything's going to occur during this generation. I'm not talking about far off times here. Secondly, he gives them a front end general marker. He tells them that the gospel will first be preached to the whole Roman Empire. He says it's going to be preached to all nations. But the way he's using that word there is the same way that Luke uses it in Luke chapter 2 Verse 1, the very famous passage where it says, A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the world. It's the same phrase. It's speaking of all the nations of the Roman Empire. And so we know on the front end, there's got to be, it's going to happen in that generation, but on the front end, enough time has got to go by for the apostles and other disciples to spread the word of the gospel throughout the entire world. Roman Empire, and we know from good records that that, in fact, occurred by the time you get into the mid-60s A.D. Now, within that general time frame, he tells them other general things that are going to happen. He says there's going to be a progression of sorrows, a progression of sorrows. The first is wars and rumors of war, earthquakes, and famines. He says it's going to be absolutely crazy, so keep your head. Remember what I'm telling you, because it's going to be insane, Then he tells them that the Christians are going to be hated and persecuted by all nations. In other words, all the nations of the Roman Empire. And we know that that was a development that occurred in the mid-60s A.D. Up to that time, the Christians suffered persecution from the unbelieving Jews. And the Romans throughout the book of Acts are always stepping in to to actually protect the Christians. But in the mid-60s A.D., that all changes under Emperor Nero who many think actually started the Great Fire of Rome, but he needed a scapegoat, whether he started it or not, and his scapegoat became the Christians. The Christians started the Great Fire of Rome, and even Tacitus records how the Christians became a despised and a hated people by all the nations of the empire. So Nero began the first Roman persecution of the Christians during that time. Then he says that, Uh, What's going to happen within the Christian community is the love of many is going to grow cold. And they're going to begin to turn on one another because they're going to be disappointed with this life that Jesus has given them. They've believed in Jesus, now... Uh, they're suffering all of this hardship, it seems like things are not going well, this is not the Christian life I envisioned, this is not what I want for me and my children, and they begin to grow cold, they begin to turn away from Jesus, to turn against the church and to turn against one another. So you're going to have a lot of those who are professing Christians and especially among the Jewish professing Christians who are going to turn their backs on the faith and who are going to leave and who are going to provide information against other Christians. He said all of that's going to happen in this progression of sorrows then he assures them of the nature of his coming and judgment in Jerusalem he says there's going to be a lot of false messiahs and there's going to be a lot of false prophets there's going to be a lot of stuff that you're hearing a lot of static but he assures them look this is not going to be a private event my coming and judgment is not going to be a private thing if you hear from a letter if you hear from somebody else oh he's out in the desert He's in the hallways. He's somewhere else. He says, my coming is not going to be private. It's going to be public. It's going to be lightning in the sky. That's a public event. It's not private. You can see it. Even if the lightning is way away from you, you can see it in the sky. And he said that his coming and judgment on Judea is going to be something that everybody will be aware of. You're not going to need a letter to find out about it. He said that it's going to be like eagles gathering where the carcass is. He says that's what it is. You have to remember that eagles. The eagle was the symbol of the Roman Empire. And instead of having buzzards gathered where the carcass is, which is normally what you would expect, he has eagles gathered. And what he's talking about is when you see the Roman legions gathered around the carcass of Judea, you're not going to need anybody to tell you about it. You're going to know. I haven't seen that many buzzards out here in in the West. I see lots of hawks and eagles and falcons and stuff like that. But back in the East, we'd see uh, a lot of uh, eagle, I mean, buzzards there. And of course, in the East, you have a lot of woods and a lot of forests and so forth. So you can't see the horizons like you can out here in the West. But one of the sites I often remember being out in the woods and so forth or driving out on country roads in the East is you would see buzzards up. Because they're way up above the trees. You see buzzards, three or four buzzards, way up there in the air, circling around. And that told you one thing. Something was dying. You couldn't see it. You didn't know what it was. But there's no mistaking. You see those buzzards circling. Something is dying. And that's what Jesus is saying. When the eagles of Rome have gathered around, you're going to know that there is a corpse. And then finally, he gives them this very specific sign to watch for that will signal when the believers in Judea must drop everything and run for their lives. And also, at least in the Gospel of Luke, he says, let those who are outside of Judea not go in. If you're a believer and you're outside of Judea, you don't go in. If you're a believer and you're in Judea, you get out. And what is this specific sign? Well, he says the sign is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That's in verse 15. Jesus says, when you see it standing in the holy place, those in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 16. Now, there was a rock fortress called Pella. It was hidden in the hill country about 60 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and many of the Christians fled there, flee to the mountains. And that's exactly where they went. And Jesus says, when you see this sign, the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel, standing in the holy place, drop whatever you're doing, wherever you are. Don't try to pack at that point. Don't go back home. Don't try to grab anything. Get out now. You grab your family and you go. Now, what was the abomination of desolation? Or more accurately, the abomination that causes desolation. Desolation means that God is leaving his house. He is deserting his house. He's deserting. And that brings about the destruction of his house. When God is in his house, no one can touch his house. But when God abandons his house because it has become condemnable, in other words, it has become so filthy due to the sins of his people, that God evicts himself, as it were. He leaves, he abandons it. What's left for that house that has been uh, condemned Well, it has to be destroyed. So the abomination of desolation is the abomination, the great sin, that causes God to desolate his house, to move out and to bring the wrecking crew in. So that is the big question because that's what he tells his disciples to watch for. Well, the most popular theory is that the abomination of desolation was the Roman soldiers after Jerusalem had been taken, after the temple precincts had been taken, placing their Roman standards with the eagles in the temple and sacrificing to them. Now, that was their custom. When the Roman legions would take a city or take some new place, they would go into the temple of the local gods of that people and show the mastery of the genius and the power of Rome over that people and over their local gods. And so they would take their standards, they would put them there in the temple, and they would sacrifice to the standards, the eagles of Rome, acknowledging and worshiping the genius of Rome that was bringing the grace and the peace of Rome to all the world at the point of a spear. So that was their custom. And that's the most popular theory. That, in fact, happened in Jerusalem, and that's the most popular theory about what the abomination of desolation was. But there are several problems with that theory. There are several reasons why I don't think that was the abomination of desolation, and in fact, I don't think it could have been. Here's the first problem. By the time the Roman soldiers are sacrificing to their standards in the temple, it is way too late to get out. It's too late to get out. This is the sign for Jesus' disciples to go. If they're waiting until they're sacrificing in the temple, it's all over but the crying at that point. Too late. Second, biblically speaking, pagans taking the city and the temple is never the cause of God desolating his temple. Pagans taking over God's house is never the reason why God has left his house. By the time the wrecking crew has gotten there, That means God has already left. He's not leaving because the wrecking crew got there and they're stronger than he is, so they threw him out. No, the reason why the wrecking crew showed up is because God has already left. So the cause of God desolating his house is never what the pagans do. You see, pagans don't live in God's house. Who lives in God's house? God's children live in God's house. God's bride lives in God's house. Those who are living outside God's house cannot dirty up the inside of God's house. The only ones who can dirty the inside are the ones who live inside, and that's God's own people. So the only ones who can create such an abomination, such a filth in God's house that he says, I won't live here anymore, the only ones who can do that are God's own people. And so that's where we have to look for the abomination of desolation. So if the abomination of desolation is not Romans sacrificing to their standards in the temple, what is it? Well, we get a clue from Luke chapter 21, which John read to us this morning in the scripture reading. Luke is a big help, the parallel, all of discourse there, because you have to remember, Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish Christian audience, and so his gospel tends to be steeped in Hebrew imagery, Hebrew uh, figures of speech, and so forth, that you have to have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament in order to understand. Luke is writing to the Gentile converts that Paul has made during his missionary journeys. So a lot of what Luke does there, he brings the audience along in terms of understanding the Hebrew background, but he tends to use a lot more straightforward language because of his Gentile audience. So here is how it is put in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that its desolation is near. Notice he doesn't say the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. So the abomination of desolation... Luke doesn't tell us exactly what it is, but he does equate something to the timing of the abomination of desolation. In terms of its timing, the abomination of desolation is going to occur in conjunction with Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Now, note that this is definitely before the city and the temple are taken by the Romans. Now, here's the interesting thing, and here's where our lack of knowledge of the history of the first century gets us in the trouble. In the Jewish War for Independence, there were two separate times when the city was surrounded by armies. The first one is one that almost no Christians today know about, but it's very important. The first one was not when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem. It's when 20,000 Idumean soldiers arrived at the request of the Jewish zealots, who were the real drivers behind the revolt against Rome. Now, who were the Edomians? These are the descendants of Esau. They live in Edom. They sent an army. 20,000 Edomian soldiers came to help the Jewish radicals who were driving the revolt against Rome. The revolt against Rome was driven by Jewish zealots who believed that, uh, in keeping with the teachings of the Pharisees and others, that if the Jews ramped up their keeping of the law, like the Pharisees taught by adding all kinds of stuff that God never commanded, and got holy in this kind of a man-centered, really, way, uh, that God and rallied around Jerusalem and rallied around the temple and fought for independence against Rome, God would have to rise up. God would have to defend His temple. Because God would never allow his temple to be taken. And God would bring about a great military and political deliverance from Rome. And it would create a, an independent Jewish state. That is what they believed. Of course, they conveniently forgot that God had already destroyed his temple once before when he did it through the Babylonians. And at that time, Jeremiah the prophet, who was a figure, a type of Jesus Christ, was telling them, you're the cause of this. The Babylonians, yeah, they're all evil. They're pagans and they're a problem, but they're not the problem. You're the problem. We're the problem because we live inside God's house. They live outside God's house. The problem is God's about to leave. And when He leaves, there's no protecting. And the Jews kept saying, no, God has to defend us. He has to defend us. He would never send a more wicked people against his own people just because we're unrighteous hypocrites. God would never do that. Oh, wouldn't he? Yes, he would. And so uh, Jeremiah specifically told them, stop saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, what's he talking about? This was their zealot rallying cry. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God has to defend his temple. We're going to rally around his temple. He's going to fight for us. He'll defeat the Babylonians. And Jeremiah said, stop saying that. You're turning the temple into some kind of a talisman, like it's some kind of a magic charm. That through this temple, whether we're righteous or not, whether we love God or not, whether we're hypocrites or not, we can manipulate God and make Him defend us. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah said, stop saying that. The temple of the Lord really is you. That's what. That's the point. It's really you. And if you make the temple of the Lord filthy enough, after generations and after warnings and after prophets, God eventually is going to move out and send the wrecking crew in. So that is exactly what was going on here. Remember when Jesus, uh, the last time he came to the temple, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple. Remember, he kicks out the money changers and so forth. And we typically think of that of like Jesus was condemning, you know, after all, he is the, the proto flower child of all time. He's condemning profit motives and getting money changers. Out away from the temple. No, there's no problem with the money changers because they had to sell sacrificial animals, animals that are flawless that can be offered for sacrifice because you have Jews traveling many, many miles to come to offer sacrifices. If they have to bring the animal themselves after the journey, there's a high chance that they're not going to be acceptable for sacrifice anymore. So the selling of sacrificial animals was not a problem at all. The problem is that they're in the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles is another problem Remember what Jesus says, my father said that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. And again, we hear thieves and we think, oh, these, they're capitalists, these lousy profit motive people. You know, when's Karl Marx? When, when, where is he when you need him? Um, that's not the problem. The word thieves doesn't really mean a thief. It means a brigand. It means an insurrectionist. What it means is a Jewish national hothead who wants to out Rome the Romans and out-Babylon the Babylonians by turning the political and military power structure of the day. They're not looking for the kingdom that Jesus is, is bringing, which is a transformation of all mankind, one person at a time. It's not a transformation, it's just turning it upside down. Okay, it used to be the Babylonians, now the Jews want to be on top. Well, then it was the Medo-Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and then it was the Romans, and it keeps turning upside down. And Satan is just fine and dandy with however many times it turns upside down because if you're living under this, you know that the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know that Hitler and Stalin had a big feud in World War II because Hitler is a Nazi. He's a fascist. And Stalin is a communist. And political theorists will get into all the differences between the two. I ask you, for the ordinary citizen living on the ground, does it make any difference whether you're living under Hitler or Stalin? You're no longer under a fascist regime. I have good news for you. You're under under a communist regime. Hitler is no longer your dictator. I have good news. You have a new dictator named Stalin. Do you care? No. It's the same old thing. It doesn't matter how many times it turns upside down. And that's what the Jewish zealots are looking for. Let's turn it upside down one more time and put us on the top. Well, that's the whole problem. That's been the whole of human history. The kingdom of God has come to change all of that by transforming individuals and transforming mankind. And so, these Jewish zealots now, they're the ones who are really behind the war for independence, okay? They've rallied to Jerusalem, they've rallied to the temple precincts. The high priests, who are already kind of in bed with the Romans, they're really not in favor of this stuff. But the zealots are really driving things. So the zealots have reached out to the Edomians and said, come help us in this work with us. I don't know exactly what they promised them, but here's all these descendants of Esau, 20,000 of them showing up to be with the zealots and in their cause for independence. Well what happened is when they got there, the high priests and the other rulers of the city got wind of it and so they closed the gates. So all these Edomenean soldiers can't get inside. Now what happened then is that the zealots during a storm and in the cover of night sawed the bars of the gates of uh, the city so the Edomians could get in. So in, so before that time, though, when they couldn't get in, they show up, they encamped around all the city. They're not laying siege to it, but they are encamped all around the city of Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. So the zealots saw the bars and let them get in. Once they did get in, Josephus writes about what happened. The Edomians and the zealots then went crazy and vented their wrath on the rulers and the citizens of the city who were standing against uh, their revolt. And it be, starts becoming a little bit like um, uh, the French Revolution and Robespierre. You know, anybody who's an enemy of the revolution standing in front of progress. So what they, what they did was is there was a big bloodbath. Josephus says that the outer court of the temple was filled with blood as over 8,000 people were killed, including the high priests and many other priests. And Josephus himself, the Jewish historian, believed that this was the final act that brought the judgment of God upon Jerusalem. Also, the zealots used the temple as a garrison and a stronghold, thus fulfilling Jesus' words that you have turned my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of brigands, into a den of insurrectionists. You have taken the temple, which is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and you have turned it into a headquarters for Jewish ethnic nationalism which is never what it was about, okay? There's nothing in God's instructions for the tabernacle or the temple about a court for Gentiles. Okay, we'll let you come around Gentiles, but you have to stay over there. There's nothing about that in the Old Testament. In fact, what God says in the Old Testament is that an alien or a stranger in Israel was able to come and present a sacrifice and worship just like an Israelite. He says there will be one law for you and for the stranger and the alien amongst you. So there's nothing about a court of the Gentiles. But you see the Jewish nationalists are starting to make the real division of the world, not between faith and non-faith, not between worship of the one true God and non-worship of the one true God. Now the difference is, are you a blood descendant? Are you a physical Jew or not? Well, that's not God's dividing line, and it never was. The other kind of court that you did not have that God never mentions is a court of the women. By the time you get to the first century, you have one court for Jewish males, you have another court for Jewish women, and you have a third court for Gentiles. There's nothing about that in God's instructions for the tabernacle or the temple. So you see how they're starting to transform God's house, which is a house of prayer for all nations, into a headquarters for Jewish ethnic nationalism. And that's not what the gospel is about. That's not what God is about. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. So anyway, this incident where the Edomian army camped around the city, and then when they came in, they slaughtered the priests and 8,000 others in the temple precincts is a scenario that would certainly fit the description of the abomination by God's people that brings about the final act of desolation. And it does correspond timing-wise with a surrounding of the city by armies. It would have given an opportunity for the people to get out. Now, the second time Jerusalem was surrounded by armies is the one that we know more about, and that, of course, is when the Roman Legion surrounded Jerusalem to besiege it. And that would come on the heels of the zealot-led massacre in the temple already described, and so this also fits. The question, though, arises, how could Christians flee to the mountains after the Roman army had already surrounded Jerusalem? And that's a very good question to ask. Here's the thing. A very strange event occurred. During the siege of Jerusalem, the Roman general Cestius and his armies suddenly at one point and inexplicably withdrew. Josephus writes about it. Others write about it and say it was inexplicable. They just withdraw the zealots at the time saw it as a sign of weakness. The Romans are weakness. They're fleeing. And so they pursued them. And so the Romans have withdrawn temporarily. The zealots are, are, are pursuing them. And that created an opportunity for Christians to flee the city. So that scenario also would fit the biblical language of both Matthew and Luke. Now, I don't know between the two of them, but I think it's one of them referred to as the abomination of desolation, the surrounding of Jerusalem with armies. And, of course, Jesus says, when you see that, you drop everything, you run for your lives, you run to the mountains, you get out. Well, what applications can we draw from this, uh, from this passage? Of course, when you start seeing the history of the, uh, of the first century, you start seeing, man, this really takes on a lot of life, it really takes on a lot of color. You can make a movie about this. This would be a very gripping movie, you know would a very gripping book. Uh, we, we, one of the reasons why the modern church is so captivated by the modern idea that the result of jesus 's work and, and, and so forth is to evac- a great evacuation rather than a great d day and, and an invasion of the world by his people is because our imaginations have been so captivated by all of the left behind books and so forth. Once our imagination has engaged with something and we have been uh, involved in the whole uh, uh, process of imagining something, whether through a book or movie or something else, it's very, very hard to let go of it. And it's easy for us to think that if we let go of that scenario, that at any moment and probably in our lifetimes and maybe this month, we're all going to be immediately evacuated out, in in which case, you know, I guess there will be a lot of false dentures and other uh, things left piled around, uh, according to some of these uh, scenarios, or as I saw on one bumper sticker, in case of rapture, can I have your car? Why not? So... um, but once you start seeing what Jesus is talking about and you start putting yourself there and you start seeing the actual history of the first century, our imagination begins to turn around and we begin to see, wow, this is something that actually happened in history. And we begin to see how accurate Jesus was in his prophecies, how detailed he was, and how much care he had for his people. And this is the application I want us to see. This was the beginning of the reign of Jesus Christ. This was the first generation of his reign. And it gives us a picture of how he reigns. And we have a divine commentary for this period so we can know what is really going on and why. And we can take what we learned there and apply it to the rest of history. You see, we don't have a divine commentary specific to our time. But by looking at the first century of Judea, And looking at the divine commentary that the Bible gives us, we can understand the broad principles of how Jesus reigns, what He is trying to accomplish, and how we are to conduct ourselves. So what are some of the principles we see? Here is the first principle that we see and that we should learn from this. Jesus is sovereign over human events. And His overarching goal is to bring about the visibility, the fruition and the blessing of his kingdom over all mankind and all of the earth. Jesus is sovereign over human events, and his overarching goal is to bring about his kingdom, its visibility, fruition, and blessing over mankind and the earth. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us the result of the kingdom of God is precisely this, God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the result, that's the visible result of the kingdom of God. The New Testament tells us very definitely that the beginning of the reign of Jesus Christ is not something that lies in our future. It began when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. It says in Hebrews 2.8, You have put all things in subjection under His feet. And then, in case we missed that, it clarifies by saying this, God left nothing that is not put under Him. Very, very clear. God left nothing that is not put under him. But then it says this strange phrase. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Now, what does that mean? All things have been put under him. There is nothing that has not been put under him. And yet, we do not yet see all things put under him. Well, what it's talking about there is the difference between the legal reality of a king's reign and the visible actuality of that reign. The human race, because of our own treachery against God, was placed, came to be under the power of a tyrant named Satan. Now, he didn't usurp, he gained it legally, because we, our first father and first mother, uh, turned their backs on God. And so here we find ourselves under this tyrant named Satan. Upon Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God, Satan no more has any legal claim over mankind or the earth. Jesus has the legal claim. And that's why he says in the Great Commission, just before his ascension, what? All authority has been given to me, and I'm talking about heaven, and I'm talking about earth. That's what he says. So... That's when his reign begins legally. He has all authority. He has all right. Satan has no claim. Jesus has all claim. But at this point, though, we still have have a usurper at that point. We have Satan. We look out. We have a new king, but nothing looks any different to start with. You have a new king. Stalin is no longer in charge. Hitler is no longer in charge. But you look around and nothing seems different right away. What Jesus taught, he said, look, this is the way my kingdom marches. This is the way my kingdom becomes visible, like a mustard seed, like leaven. Little by little, because it's transformational. So there's this difference between Jesus legally becoming king and that becoming visible, the results of it becoming visible in the earth as individual men, women, and children bow the knee before Jesus and acknowledge Him as the King. Now, the Bible gives us several metaphors for Jesus' reign and and what it looks like and what He does. One of the metaphors is shaking things, shaking things up. We find that in Hebrews chapter 12. It says that Jesus, who once spoke on top of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament when the law was given to, to Moses, yep, that was Jesus, shook the earth. He says, well, Jesus now is talking from heaven, and he's shaking heaven and earth. And then it tells us why. He says so that he can remove everything that can be shaken. Everything that can be shaken loose, Jesus is going to shake loose. This is one of his goals as he presides over human history. Well, what is the only thing that cannot be shaken loose? It tells us the kingdom of God. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All right. So... That's not, though, a picture of Jesus being a maniacal, cruel tyrant who loves to mess with people. So he's shaking everything up because he loves to mess with people. No, Jesus loves to save people. But you have a world full of people clinging to false saviors and worshiping false gods. And as long as things are good, they think their saviors can save them, even if their savior is themselves. It's only when the ground starts shaking that they have to realize that their saviors cannot save them. What do people do when the ground starts shaking? What do people do in an earthquake? You grab for whatever you think is stable. When Jesus shakes the earth, people grab for their gods. Whatever their god is, maybe themselves, maybe their government, maybe their money, maybe something else. They're going to grab for their god. You're going to find out what their god is really quick. When things really start to shake. Jesus, through that, exposes the fraudulent nature of people's false savior and God's. He proves to people. Because if you just come and say to people, look, that, that's a false savior you're trusting in. It can't save you. It can't deliver you. People are not going to believe you. They're going to cling. Jesus has to shake the ground for them to realize that their savior can't save them. Jesus is the only savior. The other metaphor that is given is given by Jesus in Matthew 7. He talks about a house built on the rock and a house that's built on sand. You remember that one. Those built on the rock is the ones that's built on faith and Jesus' word. The one built on sand is the ones built on anything else. Any other one, any other word. But he says one house stands and the other house falls. Again, you start to see who is the true God. What's the true rock? And what's the false? Well, how do we tell the difference? Well, a flood comes. But notice the flood doesn't just come on the house built on sand. The flood also comes on the house built on the rock. That's how you tell the difference. They both are in the storm. The one on the rock stands. The one on the sand falls. The other metaphor we have is that of a rod of iron. The rod of iron. It says that Jesus is going to rule by a rod of iron. In the book of Revelation, it says that he rules by two things. The sword that comes out of his mouth which is the word of God, the word of the gospel. He rules by the word, the word of the gospel, and he rules by the rod of iron. And that is judgment. What does the rod of iron look like? The rod of iron looks like earthquakes, famines, natural disasters, economic turmoil, political unrest, four emperors dying in two years, chaos of every type. That's what the rod of iron looks like. It looks like everything being shaken up. So the picture we get is that, look, everybody's going to die. We live in a fallen world. Everybody dies. Pick how you're going to die. Are you going to die by the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth? Are you going to die by the word of God? Are you going to die by the sword of the Spirit? Are you going to die by the word of the gospel? Which means that you die right here where you are in the death of Jesus. You die in his death, which means you are immediately raised in his resurrection which is what Jesus meant when he said that those who believe in the Son have eternal life and shall live even though they die. You can die that death, die in Jesus' death and be raised in his resurrection. That's what it means to die by the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. The only other option you have is to die by the rod of iron. You perish in the way, and then you perish on the last day. Everybody dies. Pick your death. As for me, I'm picking the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth because I want to die in his death and raise and rise in his uh, resurrection. And so this is the big picture of why Jesus reigns how he reigns. And his goal is to bring about the purity and the maturity of the church and each one of his disciples. In other words, his goal is to conform each one of us and all of us together into the image of Jesus Himself, Romans eight twenty nine, whom God foreknew, He predestined to be the conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that when everything is said and done, you look out and see a sea of Jesus's. Not physically, not that our, not that we're little clones, but character wise, our love for God, our love for one another, our character, our whole way of thinking and seeing and processing life. It's exactly like Jesus, even though we're all different. That is the goal. And that's why God works all things together for good to those who love him. And so Jesus' purpose, as we see it in our passage here, is that we not grow cold. We not grow cold in our love. We not grow lawless. But rather we endure to the end. In other words, true faith endures. True faith never just sits there. True faith always produces results. True faith lasts. True faith bears up. True faith endures. When everything starts shaking, when everything gets crazy, true faith just grabs that much tighter onto Christ. It grabs that much tighter onto His Word, no matter how crazy things are getting. And its love does not grow cold. True faith says, when I start to get disappointed in the Christian life, are disappointed with what's going on? Are some of my expectations or hopes or didn't work out? I know the problem is me. The problem is not Jesus. My idea of the Christian life is off in some way. I'm starting to grow cold in my love toward Christ. And I fight for it. That's what true faith does. I fight for it. I fight for my faith. I fight for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I fight for my love to my fellow Christian. That is what Jesus is looking for. And then finally, we see that Jesus as the good shepherd has an infinite pastoral concern for each of his sheep. Jesus has an infinite pastoral concern for each one of you. The fact that he's God, the fact that he's concerned with a sparrow falling, or how many hairs are on your head, and I'm trying to help Jesus out here doing my part, The fact that Jesus is concerned with all of that doesn't limit his ability to be concerned with you. Now, we can take that in a real shallow, sappy kind of way, like all Jesus cares about is to help me find a good parking place at Walmart or something like that. Um, And we can take it in a sappy way, and we can look upon him as our little genie. We rub the lamp and call him up whenever we want. Then we send him to his corner and say, mind your own business, Jesus. I'll call you when I, I, when I want you. Or we can take it in the way that's intended in Scripture, where, it's, where the love and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God just astound us and make us love him all the more. It says in Psalm 116, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of each one of his saints. Now, this is kind of a strange thing to say, in a way, But when you think about it, is there ever a more personal moment than our moment of death? Is there ever a time when we're going to feel more alone than the time of our death? Even if we're surrounded by our loved ones, if we're laying in the hospital, if we have cancer, whatever it is, if we're in a prison camp because of our faith, wherever we are, as we see our death approaching, even if everybody's there around us in our hospital room, We're about to go somewhere that all of these loved ones, they can't come with us. No matter how much they love us, they can't come with us. We're about to do this when nobody can help us. What this verse is really saying is in that moment of the greatest aloneness, Jesus is there saying, take my hand. Take my hand. Individually, personally. Personally. For each one of his sheep, no matter how we die, no matter how we die, in our sleep, in a hospital, in a war, in a prison, it doesn't matter. He will be there to say, take our hand. What did Stephen say when he was about to die? He saw heavens open and he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus walked this walk. In Psalm 22, you'll find his great... Meditation and prayer on the cross. That's the psalm that we get, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from? And sometimes we get this idea that God, because Jesus was bearing the sin of the world, uh, couldn't look at his son and had to turn away from our son. But that's not really what it means. What Jesus is saying is, why have you forsaken me? Why have you delivered me up to this point? Because what we see through this psalm is that the Father and the Spirit are with Jesus through this whole thing. So Jesus is crying out to God through this whole psalm. And we see, remarkably, with Jesus on the cross, he's about to walk this walk that nobody can come with him on. He's about to go into the grave based on the promise of his father that his father is going to raise him from the dead, that he's going to enable Jesus to go where no man has gone before. Jesus, as a man, had to walk with God that walk. And Jesus calls upon each one of us to walk with him in that moment. And that's what he is promising here. And so in the middle of Psalm 22, Jesus is saying, Save me, save me, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then we have these remarkable words in verse 21. You have answered me. There's the resurrection. And what's the result? I will declare your name And all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over all nations. We see Jesus' great pastoral care toward each one of His disciples in that generation, and that gives us the pattern for His care for each one of us. This is what God calls us to. This is why Jesus reigns. This is how he reigns. This is what he's looking for. He calls his people to go through storms as he shakes everything up, to show the true faith. He calls us to not grow cold in our love toward Jesus, to not grow cold in our love toward one another, to cling to him and to cling to one another, and to walk with him even to the point of death. This is our Savior. This is the reigning king of the world.